the gloriousness with which we've been blessed today has truly been fantastic, phenomenal in many respects, and even tonight as we are gathered at the shades of evening with now gathered about us to engage in another worship and oh how worthy God is of our worship. In fact, we can appreciate and look forward from our study in the revelation of that glorious day when forevermore we shall be able to express our gratitude, thanksgiving, and worship unto the very one who most certainly and powerfully deserves it. We come tonight to the 26th and final lesson in the series of studies on the book of Revelation. This series that we began on the first Sunday in June of 2007 has now taken us to the second Sunday in December to complete it. But all the while, it's my trust that we've each been edified and encouraged as we have taken a somewhat in-depth look at the book of Revelation. And tonight's lesson will simply be an overview, a brief recital or rehearsal of some of the major aspects and things that we have seen over the course of this book. And thus, without any further ado, might we begin by first placing this book one last time into the placement with which it is easily seen to be in the New Testament. The 27 New Testament books fall so logical in their arrangement. And isn't that an artifact of the greatness of God's logic and the characteristic of His impression of that fact upon us? The four gospel accounts set before us the life of the greatest single individual by far to ever have lived, Jesus Christ. Directly following that, the book of Acts informs us of how we can personally benefit from the life of that one, namely the establishment of the church and how to become a Christian. The 21 books that follow, Romans through Jude, in a very basic way, tell us how to live day by day and moment by moment the Christian life. Only one book remains, and that's the book of Revelation. And it is the capstone in many ways of all of them in which we learn what is the hope of a Christian, how to die in Christ and go home to glory. But having made that statement, oh, how wonderful it is to think about that last book then in terms of the lesson specifically it has presented is it not true that key word is overcome? Occurring again over 15 times in the book, it is essential and necessary to overcome self, Satan, and sin, and thus to be able to go home again and be with our Savior forevermore. In fact, the very text that Brother Vestal read a moment ago is the one I chose as the review text for the whole book. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame him and sat down with my Father in his throne. And after all, isn't that the goal of each of us to overcome and to thus be with Jesus? Finally, you might note that we tonight shall attempt thus to use a visual reminder of some of the main lessons in the book. I put that word visual in quotation marks, reminding us that this is a visual book, almost certainly more so than any other of the New Testament books, rivaled perhaps by some in the Old Testament. But what can we say then about the character of this visual representation? First, the book of Revelation, according to chapter 1, was addressed to seven congregations in Asia Minor. Those congregations, of course, are listed in order as follows. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as we looked at the individual letters to each one of them, we tried to position roughly where they are on the map. And we noticed that this book of Revelation was written in apocalyptic language. Chapter 1, verse 1 sets before us the critical element that the Savior signified it. And that fact we must never overlook. The language thus employed is visual. Principles are presented and taught by virtue of images, pictures, and scenes. It is not a narrative in chronological order. With that thought stated, 
chapter 1, verse number 15 reminded us that here Jesus stood in the midst of his churches. And as he stands there as their defender and as the one who is the source of their faith, he very much like that one in Daniel chapter 3 has his feet, as it were, burnished in fire and brass. In fact, our Savior in Revelation 1.18 was alive, then dead, then alive forevermore. That would have been great comfort to those Christians who in fact themselves were under great duress and perhaps a threat of death. And yet Jesus died for them. Ought not you and I consider in our devotion to Christ that we may be called upon ultimately to give our life for Him? With that noted, chapter 2 opened by addressing the church in Ephesus. After commending that congregation for having tried a false apostles and found them to be false, he did quickly say, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, for thou hast left thy first love. This church, though they still understood the truth, were not as zealous and fervent and ardent and loving as they ought to have been with respect to it, and they were severely rebuked. They were urged to repent and do the first works. To that church in Smyrna, they too were rebuked, but it was noted for them that there was a great trial of affliction to come their way. For ten days in that figurative lesson, but this warning was given too, be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. How important that is for us still today, that though difficulties and afflictions certainly will come our way, we too must be faithful. To that church at Pergamos, they were in Satan's seat. Antipas, the faithful martyr, had been put to death, in fact, but they were nonetheless admonished and rebuked for the fact that they upheld the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were again told to repent. That church in Thyatira tolerated Jezebel, the false teaching that went with her, and perhaps we might note verse 29 of Revelation 2, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Those lessons are as vital today as they were then to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. That congregation, again, very bluntly was told this by the Savior, Thou hast a name that thou livest, but art dead. A church who had the appearance by virtue of name to be alive and well, but the Savior told them you're dead. You need to come back to life, very much like the lesson we studied this morning. Spiritual slumber will not avail heaven. In fact, did he not say to them that you ought to walk in white so that I'll not blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 3, 5. To that church at Philadelphia, how highly complimented they were. They were small indeed, but Jesus said, you've done what you could with what you had, and I'll bless you for that, for I'll open a door before you that no man can shut. Finally, the seventh one, the church at Laodicea, this one was the one church that made the Lord sick. He said, I would that you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. I'll therefore spew you out of my mouth. They made Jesus sick. And so too today, lukewarm Christians will do the same. Finally, do we not see in Revelation 3, 20 and 21, that very text that we noted earlier, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Savior does knock, doesn't He? If any man will open the door and allow me in, I'll sup with him and he with me. And isn't it true that to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne? May we never forget that God's tomorrow is brighter than our today. If we will overcome, we have all the precious promises that Revelation closes with to look forward to forevermore. 
Following that, Revelation 4 opens. And John sees an open door in heaven. In majesty and in power and in beauty, he sees this open door and is given the privilege of peering through it, if you will, to see what is there inside. And as John sees that open door, he quickly is made aware of the following. He sees a majestic throne. And one sitting upon that throne and around it are 24 elders and four living creatures. And in the somewhat near distance is an innumerable host of angels. John is amazed. He is absolutely overwhelmed and proclaims, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The wonder and amazing character of this vision practically brings John to his knees, it would seem. For in his proclamation of the holiness of God and as he hears these various creatures do the same, he observes and witnesses something. Namely, he witnesses that they cast their crowns down before him. And as those crowns are cast, John is again made aware of how that in Revelation 4 verse 8, there is a book in the right hand of the one on the throne. But amazingly, no one in heaven or on earth is found worthy to take that book and open this and loosen the seals and to reveal its contents. John begins to weep because it would appear the saga is about to close no sooner than it opened. However, one of those elders quickly comforts John tremendously by stating, there is one worthy. That one that is worthy to take the book and loose the seals is none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah. None other than the one who before John's very eyes becomes a lamb, the very one identified as the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ our Savior. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's famous description of John 1.29. May we notice then that this lamb that is under description, this lion, L-I-O-N, of the tribe of Judah, is indeed a creature of great strength and fortitude and power, but yet our Savior is as meek and as gentle as a lamb to those that will follow him. Is he not described in John chapter 10 as the great shepherd on one occasion, and yet you and I as sheep are to follow him? Might it also be noted that in Revelation 5 verse number 12, we notice the great glory that's attributed to our Savior. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And John hears and sees the great affirmation of this praise and this worthiness to the very cause of Jesus. With the completion of chapter 5, we quickly turn our attention to chapter 6. One by one, the seals are loosened off that seven-seal book. The first four seals are opened very rapidly. And we immediately, one by one, see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see a white horse and a red horse and a black horse and a pale horse. And as we studied those, we learned that historically they represented many things, one of which was the victory, but then followed by the bloodshed, the dearth and pestilence, and finally the death that came along with Roman conquest. But did we not learn valiantly that they also are descriptive of the final state of all those who have the audacity and the foolishness to oppose the God of heaven? Amazingly, we noted that as those horsemen rode and the various things to be seen about them, our attention became riveted upon the fifth one. For when the fifth seal was opened, John saw a tremendous altar, but souls were found underneath it. Those souls were martyred for the cause of Christ. They had given their life in defense of the gospel. 
Rome and others had put them to death, but God was not unaware of their state. They cried out, How long, O Lord, shall the cause for which we fought not be vindicated? God responded, It shall be a little bit longer. They were admonished to be faithful. They were admonished to recognize that God's timetable may not be ours. For isn't it still the case, 2 Peter 3, 8, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. When seal number 6 was opened, terrible things are observed. John again saw great stars falling from heaven, earthquakes renting the surface of the planet. And what's more, he saw both the sun and the moon become black as sackcloth, if you will, the moon as red as blood. All the while, we came to appreciate that this was tending toward the ultimate end of all those who opposed the cause of Christ. Verse 17 of Revelation 6 simply reads as follows, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? At that point, chapter 7 opened, and with that said, we immediately noted something rather intriguing. For immediately a command was given for an angel to hold the winds of earth until, until there would be a sealing of the foreheads of the servants of God. We immediately appreciated the significance of having the forehead sealed with the very name and power of the God of heaven. On this occasion, we have a visual image of the sealing of those foreheads. But we noted immediately that those that were sealed were described in a number of ways, one of which was they were numbered 144,000. But as the next verse quickly reminds us, that numbering of the 144,000 was identically an innumerable multitude in the halls of heaven, for they were surrounding the very throne of God. That scene helped to see that these that were sealed was not a literal number of 144,000 figuratively representative of all the redeemed of all the ages. For Revelation 7 verse 14, the very context of this passage said, These are those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've already noted the Lamb was Jesus. Washed in the blood of the Lamb is a statement of the act of baptism in which we have our sins washed pure and clean, taken away from us, imputed to us no more. That scene, though, quickly reminds us that John had much more to see, not the least of which was that that 144,000 was recognized as symbolically being from those 12 tribes described in that chapter. But remember that those tribes were not literally the same ones of which we read in the Old Testament, for some of the 12 were not listed, but others were. Isn't that all the more interesting when we noted it directly implied this, that Revelation 8 was the next element in John's fantastic vision. For in Revelation 8, we noted that John immediately saw seven angels, each carrying a trumpet. And they were each shortly to blow upon that trumpet, and tremendous forces would be unleashed, and tremendous things would take place that would bring those opposed to God to their knees. We saw directly the fulfillment in history when Rome suffered due to these things. But if you notice some of the pictures that rolls many of these into one. Here is again some of what John saw as one by one those trumpet judgments were blown. We remember that one of them in particular had to do with the seas, and another had to do with the mountains, and another had to do with the grasses being burned. And each of those figuratively represented one aspect of God's onslaught against Rome and the conquest of her against His will. One of them in particular was the third of them, which we saw to be wormwood. 
And as that star fell from heaven and caused great catastrophe upon earth, it was a direct reference to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and Lamentations when wormwood there represented the gall and iniquity and the terrible anguish that was to be those who again opposed the will of heaven. With the coming of wormwood, you might notice in that previous picture, one of the things that you might have noticed in it, there out of that pit, at the center of that picture, that's a bottomless pit or, suppo or supposed to be according to Revelation. But you might remember out of that pit came a smoke and the smoke became locusts. And those locusts, of course, had a king known as Abaddon and Apollyon, none other than Satan himself. Thus, this hellish influence from the underworld, from Satan himself, caused so many to be led astray. And in fact, to think that they were doing God's service when in fact they were not. All the while, as chapter 8 rolled onward, these trumpet judgments raised within us a keen appreciation of how important it is to do God's will. And at that point, we hasten to see in Revelation chapter 9, the following scene that's so very pertinent with respect to these thoughts. I would ask that you perhaps note carefully the reading of Revelation 9 verse 21. For as these trumpet judgments were unfurled and as they were unleashed, this description seems so appropriate. Neither repented they of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. You see, God's intent was to garner the attention of these opposed to Him. He had extended His love, but they had ignored it. Now in His wrath, He attempts to gain their attention, and yet He still says, Neither did they repent. Might we again never forget Romans eleven twenty two? Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God toward them that fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in His goodness. God tries to gain our attention, perhaps by virtue of His love, but if not that, by virtue of His wrath. Here we see that these matters that took place led us directly to the scene of Revelation 10, where John saw a mighty angel with one foot upon the water and one foot upon the sea. This angel was mighty, and as the picture indicates, a section of a rainbow up over it. This angel had something in his hand. It was a little book. Not the same book now as the one we had seen back in chapters 4 and 5. That was the seven-sealed book. In this little book, John was given some interesting instructions. Take this little book and eat it up. John proceeded to do that very thing. Just as Ezekiel had been told in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 to eat up the little book there, so too John was given that instruction. That little book we came to appreciate to be the thoroughness of the Word of God so that he, by his prophecy, Revelation 10, verses 9 and following, would be able to share that with others and lead them to the truth to be found therein. This mighty angel, thus as he gave that commandment, set the stage for what is to follow in Revelation 11. For indeed, when John ate that little book up, the next thing he saw in Revelation 11, which was the last chapter in this opening saga, if you will, of the book of Revelation, we notice in that book, in that chapter I should say, that again John had a tremendous opportunity to witness and see something. He saw an altar of the courtyard and he was told to measure it. For there was a measuring reed and in the course of that measurement much was to be learned. 
we notice in particular two tremendous witnesses that John saw on that occasion. Witnesses that had never abdicated the truth of what God had revealed. We identified those witnesses when we studied that chapter. One of them was the Holy Scriptures and the other was the church. All the while, that church in the Middle Ages and in the Dark Ages may have become weak. And it seems for a time may have even become to the point where it was difficult to even appreciate and recognize it. However, the triumphant character of it arose again. On Wednesday evenings, we've been seeing a bit of that in the Restoration and Reformation movements. But notice these witnesses stood strong and firm just as they had in Zechariah chapter 4. The statement to be seen therein is directly such that in chapter 12 we reach the next major section of the book. For those witnesses, even though they were standing strong and true, they were opposed. And in chapter 12 we meet the grand description of their arch enemy, that great dragon. This dragon is one who is described to us in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 12. This great dragon is called the devil, called Satan, called the deceiver of the whole world, called the great accuser of our brethren. As we noted in a sermon not many Sunday mornings back, he is our great enemy. He stands opposed to all that God defends and supports, and that includes you and me in terms of our eternal salvation. This great dragon, as we see in this particular picture, is such that he is not stronger than God. For in fact, isn't it true that this great dragon was cast out? There's war. There was war in heaven, and he, in fact, lost. Michael defeated him, cast out of heaven he was, and he began to thus thwart and to operate in the vein of, human, in the vein of humanity here on the surface of this planet as Satan undergoes that work. Might we appreciate, though, that in this very chapter, Revelation 12, we are told exactly what must be done to defeat him. For in fact, there's a, th tri a threefold attack. First, we notice that the blood of the Lamb, the word of his testimony, and being willing to die for, his, for the cause of Christ. Those who have those characteristics are an unbeatable foe for the devil. Satan simply cannot defeat that person. As we notice that statement, Revelation 12, though, closes by noting that that woman was protected, representative of the faithful in the church. Again, though weak she may have been, and though relatively few in number, she was protected and preserved and continued onward. And aren't you and I the beneficiaries of those blessings even until this day? That scene, though, does quickly hasten us to notice that Revelation 13 showed us the first of two terrible beasts. The first was the sea beast who arose out of the water and had tremendous power to thwart and to operate against the plan of God. As this beast went about his business, we notice that he very quickly had a helper. This helper was the land beast, and this particular picture attempts to show both of them. We notice, in fact, all three present. There is the dragon, there is the sea beast, there is the land beast. We identified who that land beast was as well as who the sea beast was. The sea beast was the Roman Empire in its initial prescription. It was this tremendously powerful entity who reigned over the vast excesses of earth. And that land beast was, of course, the cult of emperor worship. That encouragement on the part of Rome to bow down before the Caesar and to have a state-supported religion, which was not the true religion of God. 
as we studied all of that, we quickly saw that these were ferocious adversaries to the cause of God, but they were not undefeatable. And in particular, doesn't that remind us of the scene of Revelation 14, which right after this reminds us of the mark of the beast, 666. That mark of the beast reminded us of Latinos, those who followed the Roman Empire. We saw that today you and I can still be just as guilty of committing the same errors, following that which is opposed to God, compromising the truth, and thus doing exactly what they did then who wore that mark of the beast. Thus in Revelation 14, it is the case that we saw a fail-proof and guaranteed method to reach heaven. Many in our world, no doubt, would like to reread that text. The problem is many aren't willing to do what it says, for it says, Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. If you and I shall follow the Lamb whithersoever we goeth, we obviously shall arrive at where He now is. But Hebrews 6 verses 18 to 20 tell us He's now in heaven. So if we follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, we shall end up in heaven. Following the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, tells us that as chapter 14 closes, it's a rather dramatic statement of the wine press of the wrath of God again poured out one more time upon those who have not done His will. But for that reason, we do see a brightness presented in Revelation 15, the shortest chapter in the book. But yet how beautiful as we see this glassy sea, and there are some standing beside it, and they sing a song with two stanzas, the song of Moses and the Lamb. Moses, the song of victory. The Lamb, the song of eternal forgiveness through the nature of His blood. When we see them being sung, that chapter closes by reminding us that there are others, however, who are not amongst that number because they have not been in a position to sing that song. They have not obeyed the Savior. To that extent, we see angels, each one carrying a bowl, a golden vial that shall be poured out. This is reminiscent of the seven trumpet judgments, but now it's seven golden bowls or seven golden vials. One by one, beginning in chapter 16, they're poured out. It's a rather fearsome thing again to witness and to see. But as they're poured out, what great lesson do we learn? We learn the following, that these involve plagues. In fact, that's the very word used in Revelation 16, verses 7 and following. Immediately to our mind comes the plagues of the Old Testament fame when God poured them out on Egypt. Remember, God's people were spared by and large from those plagues. Though there were frogs and flies and darkness and death and murrain of beasts and boils and locusts and hail in the land of Egypt, God's people in Goshen were exempted. On the last case, they put blood on the doorpost. And when they stood in the house and remained faithful to what God said, the death angel passed over. These plagues remind us that these are intended for those who are not God's people, those who have not submitted the knee and bowed the knee to Him. Thus we see the terribleness that's to be observed in the character of all the descriptions which were one by one seen as those plagues were poured out. In Revelation 16 in particular, one of those plagues had to do with something called Armageddon. We notice that there's to be a great battle and an onslaught that's a figurative description of God's ultimate overthrow of all those opposed to Him and all those who are the very followers of Satan. Armageddon, as we noted, is not a literal battlefield in Palestine. That battle has principally already been defeated and won. Christ won it at Calvary. 
And when you and I remain faithful to Him, the finality of it will be seen at the day of judgment when all those who haven't been faithful shall be cast forevermore into a devil's hell. Armageddon. Doesn't that remind us as chapter 16 ends? We have another description again of the terror and fearsomeness to be seen in it. But what about that woman described in chapter 17? We notice that a woman who is described as a great harlot is described. She is bedecked in all the jewels and finery and extravagance that one can imagine. And she is described for us as the one riding on seven hills. And since Rome was the seven-heeled city and the description fits so kindly and naturally, we understand again who is being described. In fact, in capital letters, likely in your King James Version, you'll notice in Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5, Mystery Babylon the Great. This harlot had the name of Babylon. And do we not see that this mystery Babylon, this one that's so described in that way, would meet her fate because as this chapter closes, that fate would be poured out. The harlot would be defeated. We understood that word harlot reminded us of the fornication spiritually that had been committed when one by one nations had been encouraged by the nature of Rome, both physically and spiritually by virtue of Catholicism, to follow that which was false. But in light of that point, we can see that concerning the harlot, it's to be noted that Revelation 18 sets before us the power and the majesty of one who is victorious. The description is most completely seen in Revelation 19 when this one is seen riding a white horse which is the symbol of victory. This white horse thus presents before us the fact its rider is none other than Jesus for he is wearing the vestments of blood and those vestments remind us that he shed his blood of course for all so that those who would respond in faith could ultimately be saved. You might notice that there is something emanating from his mouth. Perhaps you can't see that too well, but it's none other than the very character of his word. And as that word emanates, it is by that word that all of us one day shall, of course, be judged. The victory to be seen in, of course, the white rider, the rider of that white horse, shows us that as Revelation 19 comes to its close, we see something rather dramatic, namely, the beast is cast into a lake burning with brimstone. We see the end, thus, of that sea beast and the land beast. Though no matter the fact that so many had chosen to follow, ultimately their end is so tragic, so catastrophic, so eternal in that they're cast into this lake that never shall cease to burn with fire and brimstone. We're beginning to see the ultimate finality as the book closes. And in so doing, we notice that chapter 20 opens with an angel carrying a chain. This chain is used to bind a particular being and to cast that being into a bottomless pit for a period known as a thousand years. That lesson, of course, wasn't too long in our past. And we notice that as the angel cast that dragon, which we identified to be the devil, into that bottomless pit for that period of a thousand years, it was a certain statement of the defeat of this one and that he is not all-powerful. Jesus, remember, is the strong man who is stronger than the one who he came to defeat. Did not John remind us in 1 John 4 verse 4 that our faith is what overcomes the world? Stated again in 1 John 5 verse 4, 
that victory that's in us is such that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That's what John led us to, to see by his writing. As that one, the Satan was cast into that place and with hell. We notice, though, that there would be a time he'd be loosed for a little season. And up in, that, in the course of that loosing in Revelation 20, we notice that that was described in the course of Gog and Magog, quoted from Ezekiel 38 and 39. We still should see, though, that his end is not in any way set aside. For it still is certain that there is to be a great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. And in the course of that judgment, we notice something else. In particular, the books were opened. And as those books were opened, each one was judged out of what was contained in those books. And one of those books was the book of life. Isn't it amazing and oh so needful for my name and yours to be in that book? For we so easily learn that anyone whose name is not in that book is in fact cast into an eternal fiery pit of fire and brimstone. It is a dramatic scene. And it's one that should never cease to exist in our mind to keep us firm and focused and honest on the great task set before us. The scene thus, as Revelation 20 closes, when the aftermath of the judgment with all those who have followed the devil now done away with, all that remains is the beauty and exquisiteness of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the new heaven and new earth described as that cubicle city of some 12,000 furlongs on a side, that city we saw to be the church in heaven. It is an exquisite sight to behold. There's no night there. The gates are never shut by night because there's no need for it. There's no stealing, no thievery, no defilement of any kind, Revelation 21, 27. And in that city, we notice carefully that God and Christ are the temple and all the light that she'll ever need. That city is, of course, described in other exquisiteness. For notice, it has the appearance of clear gold, as fine as anything you and I can imagine. And the finery is only amplified when we consider the foundations, which themselves, as we describe, to see 12 beautiful and very precious stones. We studied those recently and appreciated their colors, appreciated perhaps the significance to be seen in them. And all the while, they do hasten us, though, to see that that which is directly ahead was a very beautiful, beautiful scene in Revelation 22. In verse number 14, we notice that when John peered through the gates into the city, he saw a tree of life that bore fruit all the time. And that fruit that was born was such that there was a beautiful golden street. You might notice the golden things upon each side, but there was a river of water of life. And those there could partake of it all, as often as they wanted. No more any curse, no more any death. No more any pain, no more any sorrow or sadness, no more any defilement or evil or any such thing, but rather it's the finery and purity forevermore of the exquisiteness of God and His eternal presence. Those things did remind us that in seeing all that, the conclusion to the book might well thus be stated yet again to be the victory and the overcoming joy that is ours. If we overcome Satan, self, and sin then we can come over to live with Him forevermore. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. 
It's essential that we do His commandments. To intend to do them is not enough. To think about doing them will be of no help. We must do His commandments. And if we do, then that promise again that was read in our reading earlier shall be ours. To him that overcometh will I grant to come over and sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Friend, tonight he's still knocking at the door. Have you answered? Have you allowed him in by virtue of the greatness of what he's revealed in the Revelation? Is his God's final and last statement in all the Bible. Never again shall there be inspired writings. This is it. All things that pertain unto life and godliness have been revealed. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. This is God's last attempt to gain our attention. I trust that all of our attentions have been gained as we've studied it and that we are now prepared perhaps more so than ever to earnestly and with devotion pursue the course that leads to everlasting life. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For 2 Peter 1 verse 11. Tonight, are you a faithful Christian? Have you begun the walk with Christ but have not been true and faithful to it? We should remember that in this book we learn that those who are not had their name removed from the book of life. And that has happened to you if that's the case in your life. Come back to your first love. If you've never begun that walk with Him, there could be no better time than tonight. Never would there better be a better day than the 9th of December 2007 to start your walk toward eternity. For as you start it now, you'll be walking on the high road that leads to everlasting life and not the low road that leads to everlasting destruction. Will you not walk highly with a Savior? May the book of Revelation encourage us all to be more faithful, ardent, earnest, and devoted to His cause. Tonight, if we could help you in your response to the call of Jesus, to the call of the gospel, we'd certainly enjoy aiding you in that response, and angels are prepared to rejoice upon your behalf. If that's the need in your life, don't wait any longer. Don't procrastinate, but come even now if you would while together we stand and while we sing.